I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Pet Pod. This is the podcast that's all about pets. I'm Zara Boland. I'm a vet, a consultant, and an all-round animal lover. And each episode, I'm going to be joined by one or two of my veterinary friends and colleagues from across the pet healthcare industry so that we can offer you handy tips and some expert advice to help keep your beloved family pet healthy and above all, happy. Today, we're talking about skin and fur. Now, just like us humans, our dogs and cats can suffer from skin problems too, which can actually have a detrimental effect on their well-being and their overall physical health. And this is why it's important to know how to spot any issues early on so we can help them to maintain that healthy, shiny and fluffy coat. My guest is Dr. Danielle Houlihan, who's one of only a handful of board-certified veterinary dermatologists in Australia, and she's a true specialist when it comes to our pet skin. Danielle graduated from Perth in Western Australia, but she spent a number of years both working and studying in the USA to gain her American College of Veterinary Dermatology specialist qualifications. She has a special interest in immune-mediated skin disease, skin conditions of the ear, and allergic skin disease. And when she's away from work, she's kept very active diving, horse riding, and hiking with her own two dogs. Danielle, welcome to the Pet Pod. Thank you. So let's, I guess, start with the basics. And I know myself, one of the most common reasons that pets come into the clinic is because they might be itching or scratching. And it's very common to to see our pets doing that. Most of the time, it's completely normal. And in fact, part of a grooming routine in terms of cats behavior. But when does that itching, scratching and licking indicate that there might be something more serious going on in, in your experience? So probably one in four pets that comes to the veterinarian comes for a skin complaint. So it's a very common reason for pet owners to seek veterinary assistance. Um, And I guess itching or scratching are not the only things that we can uh, see pets present with. So it can look quite different in dogs. It can be licking, chewing, rubbing. Sometimes they're commando crawling across the grass. One of my Labradors who has allergies likes to run up and down the side of our brick wall of our house to itch the sides of himself. Um, And generally what I would say is that if pet owners are noticing their pets licking, chewing, biting, scratching, rubbing, then it's probably abnormal. So I have three Labradors um, and one Labrador has allergies. The other two are completely normal. The two that are completely normal, I'll see lick or scratch once or twice a week. It doesn't register to me because they're not doing it often enough. The one that does have allergies registers to me because he's doing it quite frequently. And so by quite frequently, to kind of give people an idea, you mean kind of lying there, but they're suddenly jumping up and licking or scratching or biting at an area and doing it repeatedly like every hour or more frequently than once or twice a day, for example. 
Yeah, or sometimes even more frequently. So typically when I'm seeing pet owners for a consultation, I'll ask them how itchy their dog is on a scale of zero through 10. So zero is not itchy at all. And 10 is licking, chewing, biting, scratching, or rubbing constantly throughout the day. And any dog that's above a two out of 10, I would consider uncomfortable. So a two out of 10 would be doing it to the point where the dog's uncomfortable, the pet owner's noticing it, and perhaps the dog's also developed some skin lesions. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious about the one to 10 scale. So is that something that, that that's widely available that we could add to the show notes for people? Like, is it a visual graphic or anything that we could add? Yeah, absolutely. It's called a PBAS scale. Um, and there are some nice schematics of that PBAS scale um, online that are available as well. Okay, great. It would be helpful, I think, for people to understand that, as you say, zero is completely normal, 10 is constant, but in between that kind of, especially around the two mark, whether that's, you know, an area of redness that's emerging or some skin loss, I guess that's all mapped out, is it? Uh, so that scale doesn't include necessarily skin lesions, but it does include the behaviours that we see with pets that are itchy. So um, it's quite a nice schematic. All right, great. So um, as we've just mentioned, redness, inflammation and hair loss generally can suggest a skin issue, certainly from a veterinary perspective that needs further exploration. And we've talked just briefly about behavior. Are there any other signs that we should be looking out for that might suggest an underlying skin problem? Yes, yeah, certainly. So we can see um, crusting or scaling. Um, we can see little pimples or pustules. Um, we can also see uh, notice an odour to the pets. So many pet owners come in and say their pets smell badly when they have um, secondary infections associated with their skin disease. And then you've already mentioned hair loss, which is quite a common complaint. The hair can be falling out or the pet can be mechanically removing the hair with their scratching or chewing. And then sometimes also associated with skin disease, we see ear infections too particularly in dogs yep and i'm very familiar with that smell you can't you can't really um define <laughs> once you know it you can't unknow it right <laughs> oh absolutely particularly because our pets spend so much of their time indoors these days um, it's very identifiable yeah, it certainly is. And it's a good indicator, I think, as well. So a lot of people, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of clients that, that might come in to see us might be, the, the first thing they'll notice is the itchy ear and the constantly scratching at the ear. Um, and then that, that kind of malodor, it's often malassezia associated, but, um, but it can indicate something much more widespread in, in terms of skin condition as well, right? Absolutely. So um, whilst ear infections can occur just on their own, it's much more common to have a pet that comes in with both skin and ear disease. So I know, Danielle, that many common uh, skin conditions are treated very successfully by GP vets, but when would a specialist such as yourself get involved? So I'm assuming when I ask this that the referrals would be more for refractory cases, so those cases that keep reoccurring or indeed worsening over time. Yeah, absolutely. So GP vets are great at looking after skin. It's 25% of what they do on any given day. So they see a lot of skin and ear cases. Um, and typically the cases are referred to us either, either if they're refractory, so the veterinarians are prescribing treatments that aren't working, or if it keeps recurring. Um, typically I try to encourage vets to refer cases to us as early as possible. Um, so for example, if we're planning on allergy testing and desensitizing a pet, that's going to work better earlier on in life than later on in life. So the average age of the case that's referred to us is three um, but that can certainly be um, different depending on the areas that we work in um, and sometimes we are referred older pets as well. Okay so let's jump into diagnostics then. We've got a pet that's come in they've got smelly ears and that's obviously one of your areas of special expertise Danielle but, but how do you go about diagnosing and treating this specifically and also working out when it's worth investigating further? 
Yeah, good question. So um, I guess my general rule of thumb is if a pet gets one ear infection and that's the only ear infection they've ever had in their life and they haven't developed another one since, we can just treat the ear infection and move on. If the pet has more than one ear infection, we need to start figuring out why this pet's developing ear infections. It's not normal for dogs just to get ear infections. So some common reasons that might trigger ear infections in pets include an underlying allergy. So that can be an allergy to something in the diet, most commonly uh, one of the meat proteins, or it can be an allergy to something in the environment like grasses, weeds, trees, insects, molds, etc. In older dogs, we can sometimes see hormonal imbalances like an underactive thyroid or another disease called Cushing's disease that can also result in ear infections too. Um, and then certainly in general practice, they do see things like foreign bodies such as grass seeds. It's summer in Australia right now and we're certainly seeing lots of grass seeds causing ear infections. Um, in older patients, we can sometimes see um, tumours or polyps that are also contributing to ear disease. That's a pretty comprehensive list, Danny. Thank you. But um, if we, we deal with the ear and it is we diagnose one of those particular causes, then I guess the, the question that leads on from that is what happens with the rest of the body? So as you talked about, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in allergies, actually, I'd like to talk a bit more about that, as I believe one of the most common triggers for ear infections outside of the fungus malassezia is actually allergies. So talk me through the methods of diagnosis then, Danielle, because as far as I'm aware, blood and skin tests are helpful for environmental allergen triggers, but a food elimination trial is actually the gold standard when it comes to food allergies. So tell us a little bit more about this. So the most common trigger for ear infections is going to be an underlying allergy. And the easiest allergy for us to rule out is going to be a food allergy. So we typically do that by doing an elimination diet trial. And the most common things that dogs will be allergic to are beef, chicken, wheat, but we can also see dogs being allergic to pork, lamb, fish, dairy, soy, etc. Um, so there's a couple of different ways we can do a diet trial. One is that the veterinarian might recommend doing one of the prescription diets. So Hills and Royal Cannon make excellent diets for food allergic dogs. Um, the other option is the veterinarian might recommend doing a home cooked diet trial. So when we're doing a home-cooked diet trial, we use a protein that the pet hasn't been exposed to before. Um, in Australia, we commonly use kangaroo as our protein source, um, or sometimes we use um, goat meat as well. The carbohydrate source is typically something like pumpkin or sweet potato, and that's all the pet eats for eight weeks and absolutely nothing else. No treats, no table scraps, nothing. I say to my pet parents, if you have to ask me, the answer is going to be absolutely not. And if you feed your dog something that I've told you not to, we're starting the eight weeks all over again. Um, and so sometimes these diet trials do go on for a considerable amount of time. At the end of that eight week period, we change the diet back to the pet's original food and we see if the signs represent. So does the dog develop an ear infection when we change the diet? Does the dog develop itchy skin again when we change the diet? Um, and typically that's how we determine whether the dog has a food allergy. But then, uh, I'm sorry to get into the nitty gritty, allergy is very different to hypersensitivity. So a, a sensitive reaction to, a sensitivity to a, to a protein or a trigger versus a, a true allergic reaction. So, and, and I, my understanding is that it has to be a, a, actually a hypoallergenic diet. So a hydrolyzed protein to a, a molecular level that its Dalton size is small enough that the body doesn't recognize it and trigger its own allergic reaction. And, and so, for example, I know that Purina do, do that hyperallergenic diet called HA, and that's for true allergies. And that is different to novel protein diets. 
Um, so I guess not necessarily. So this, uh, you can either use a hydrolyzed diet or you can use a novel protein diet. So the question is, has the dog been sensitized to that particular protein before? In which case they may have developed a hypersensitivity or an allergy to that protein. So if the dog, for example, has never had kangaroo meat and has never had sweet potato or pumpkin, it's very unlikely that they've already developed a hypersensitivity to that protein, in which case those would still be suitable um, because the dog has not been exposed to them previously. But yes, you can also use hydrolyzed diets, although the absolute gold standard of doing a food trial is to do a home-cooked novel protein, novel carbohydrate elimination diet. The reason that we don't do those uh, typically is because hard work for pet owners. So say, for example, we have a 50 kilo dog and a lot of the dogs that I see in practice are large breed dogs. I might be asking the owner to cook 2.5 to 3 kilos of food a day. That's just not realistic for many pet owners. So that's one of the reasons that we use the hydrolyzed diets. Okay, that's interesting. That makes sense. And then, and I guess the other challenge with using home cooked diets is a that there are a lot of work, but a lot of people quite enjoy um, cooking for their pets these days as well. But I think the other the other element is is the potential nutritional imbalance. So for eight weeks, it's not going to be massively um, important in that sense in terms of long term issues, but but short term, I suppose it's something else to consider. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I guess the you know other comment to add there as well is um, if it is a um, a puppy that's less than twelve months of age we probably would lean to one of the hydrolyzed diets that are balanced for growth as well um, because certainly even doing a short-term um, home-cooked diet in that population of dogs um, would be a little bit concerning. Yeah, good point. Good point. Okay, let's talk about gluten. And I think um, there's a lot of, of discussion about gluten and gluten allergic and, and gluten intolerant dogs. How real is that? How prevalent is it in terms of um, perception versus reality? Um, so certainly we can see wheat proteins being an issue um, in dogs, but specifically um, on the topic of grain-free, gluten-free, corn-free diets, it's marketing hype. Um, and typically in our dogs that do have a food allergy, it's going to be to beef plus or minus chicken um, or chicken um, rather than being to gluten specifically itself. So um, we certainly don't recommend grain-free diets um, in our practice. We don't recommend corn-free diets in our practice. We don't recommend gluten-free diets in our practice. Um, and I think that's more marketing hype than actually what's beneficial for our pets. Right. I'd agree with you fully on that. But what about cats? Um, we've talked a lot about dogs and, and their allergies. What's, what are the most common allergic triggers or, or hypersensitive triggers in cats when it comes to food? Yeah, so similar to dogs, but we add fish to the top of the list there. So we can see fish, beef, dairy, chicken, all being common offenders in cats as well. Um, and typically when we're trying to rule out a food allergy in cats, we go down the same process of dogs, whether it be a novel protein and carbohydrate diet or one of the hydrolyzed diets that you mentioned before. The difficulty with cats, as many of our pet parents will know, is it's very difficult for cats to eat the foods we want them to eat. They're very demanding. <laughs> um, and sometimes I go through five or six different diets with my cat pet parents before we decide which diet their cat's actually going to eat. But at least there's options out there and you can find one hopefully eventually. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And more options today than there was even five years ago. So it certainly makes it a little bit easier for us to do these dietary trials. And that's true. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And actually, in terms of cats then, correct me if I'm wrong, but what is the... I know ear infections, you mentioned otitis externa is the common kind of red flag for you to consider allergies in dogs. What is it in cats? I'm assuming it's not ears. No, so we do see otitis or ear infections in cats, but um, much less commonly than we do in dogs. So typically when we see cats that have food allergies, they present as itchy cats. They might be allergic around their head and neck, but they also might be itchy in other areas around their body as well. Okay. And obviously one of the the, the first things that, that we'd do as GP vets, um, hopefully before they, they'd come to your, your door as a specialist, would be to rule out things like parasitic flea infections or anything else that could cause that itching and scratching. Does that still happen? Do you still see pets coming to you that, that haven't had that ruled out? Yeah, sometimes. And um, sometimes that's a function of pet parents not wanting to use um, a flea, tick and parasite preventative. Oh, really? Because perhaps their pets are indoor only, yes. Um, or uh, the other thing that we can see is um, cats coming in with ringworm or dermatophytes. That's another common reason for itching in cats as well. So um, typically when I see an itchy cat, um, the things we like to rule out are, as you've suggested, mites. And many of our um, flea, tick and mite preventatives these days are going to take care of 99% of the things that cause itching in cats. Um, and then the next thing we like to rule out is dermatophytes or ringworms. So that's quite simple. We take a hair sample for a fungal culture and then we move into the allergy category and perform a dietary trial to rule out a food allergy. Great. And just to clarify, um, ringworm isn't actually worm, right? Let's just remind people that it's not worms that cause ringworm. No, de definitely not worms. So ringworm is a fungal organism. Um, and people are, are often quite um, surprised as well. When people get ringworm, they often get these circular, sometimes crusted lesions on their skin. Um, cats just tend to get itchy. Sometimes they do get um, skin lesions, but they're not typically circular like the lesions we see in people. That's interesting. So how prevalent is ringworm these days? I haven't come across it for years. Yeah, so um, I would say it's commonly missed um, in the sense that um, even in referral practice, we would diagnose it at least twice a week. Really? Gosh. Yeah, relatively common in our cat population. So my rule of thumb is for any itchy cat that walks through the door that hasn't had a fungal culture, um, we would certainly perform one. And I love it. It's so easy for us to treat ringworms. So it's a really good diagnosis for the pet and the pet parent um, in the sense that it's something that we can actually cure. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot easier than, than food allergies, that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, and what about some other, other common conditions, skin conditions in cats then outside of that? 
once you've got past the allergies? Yeah, so um, outside of cats, to be honest, um, once we've gotten past the mites, the ringworm um, and the allergy category, there's very few skin diseases cats tend to present to us for. So those would easily be the most common uh, diseases we see in cats. Now, certainly sometimes cats can develop immune-mediated or autoimmune skin diseases. There's one called pemphigus foliaceus, which is the most common one that I see. But even still, we'd only see five or six cats a year with that versus the thousands of cats that we'd see with allergies. So that would be the most common type of thing we see. Wow, well, that's great. And same question then for dogs. So outside of otitis externa, fleas, mites and allergies, bearing in mind that not all allergies are triggered by food, what are the most common skin conditions in dogs? So 99% of the dogs we see um, all fit into the allergy category of some sort. and They may also have ear infections at the same time. Less commonly, we'll see dogs with um, immune-mediated conditions. So most commonly, pemphigus foliaceus, which I've just mentioned. There's also a condition that can affect the claws in dogs called SLO. Um, and then we also see certain types of skin cancers in dogs as well. Um, but once again, very rarely, so it would make up less than 1% of our caseload every year. Okay. So, and that's reminded me of something, even in Australia, um, where we know there's, there's a high incidence of, of skin cancer in people, there's not that, that same reflection in the pet population? Yeah, perhaps we're seeing as much, but we're just not, uh, you know, perhaps they're not seeking referral opinions. The other thing is it is very much certain types of dogs that tend to get these skin cancers very commonly. So the dogs that like to sunbake and are sparsely haired um, or have non-pigmented skin. So our bull terriers, um, we see greyhounds with um, skin cancers, um, but it is those um, types of dogs. And to be honest, they're not as popular in Australia as they used to be. So um, when I was practicing in Perth, we used to see um, quite a few different types of skin cancers. Um, in those types of dogs. Um, but where I practice now, 90% of my caseload is a French bulldog. So um, those are not the types of dogs that tend to sunbake and develop skin cancers. Interesting. And you've just reminded me of something else talking about dog breeds. I know there's a, been an explosion of oodles in recent years. And my understanding is that the one of the main reasons behind that is because of the, in inverted commas, hypoallergenic component, given that the, the poodles tend to not shed their fur and, and cause the, the allergies in people. But is that is that the case or is that myth? <laughs> oh, I think these dogs are certainly shedding hair when they're 10 out of 10 itchy and the hair's wafting in tumbleweeds across the, um, you know, the living room. Um, but certainly oodles we do see very, very commonly with skin and ear disease. And so whilst they might not shed naturally, um, they certainly are losing a lot of hair through their scratching, licking and chewing that they're doing. So that's also another common breed that we see too. All right. Um, well, let's move on to treatments then. And I know that, that um, people often think that medication is the only answer. We have talked a lot about, um, about diagnosing food allergies, but, but actually some skin conditions um, can actually be successfully managed through food and diet um, and targeted nutrition. But do you have a, a, a treatment recommendation strategy when it comes to your pet patients? Yeah, so I guess if we talk about environmental allergies, which is the most common type of allergy that we manage, there's a lot of different ways we can approach that. So um, some of these dogs will improve on diet because there are certain diets out there that contain lots of omega-3s and 6s and sometimes 9 that will help to support the skin. Um, the next component is controlling the itch. Um, 
and certainly if the itch score is above a two out of 10, if we reference that scale we were using before, then the dog is uncomfortable and they should be medicated. Um, compared to the options we had when I first started veterinary medicine many years ago, we've got huge amount of options for controlling itch in dogs, less options in cats, unfortunately, at this stage. Um, and many of these options are very effective and safe. Um, and your veterinarian would be the best person to discuss those options with you. The next option for these dogs with environmental um, allergies uh, is allergy testing them. So finding out what they're actually allergic to. So there's skin tests and blood tests that we can do to find out what these pets are allergic to. And once we've identified what they're allergic to, we can desensitize them. So we make them a serum containing all the things they're allergic to. The pet owners normally give them uh, by injection at home themselves, and we teach them how to give those injections. Um, and that can be helpful in the vast majority of dogs. But usually it's a combination of different factors. So when we see pets with skin disease, we might recommend the allergy testing and desensitization therapy. We might recommend modifying their diet. We might prescribe medications to help control their itch. And we may also recommend other things like um, regular bathing that'll help to remove allergens um, and help to uh, sometimes manage the skin disease in those pets. And of course, these pets, as we mentioned earlier, often have secondary infections with either yeast or bacteria. So treating those secondary infections is important too. Okay, now that's pretty comprehensive. Um, just touching on, on washing and bathing dogs, though, I'm aware that that can be overdone and you can actually strip all the, the natural oils from the skin by overdoing that. So how often do you recommend that people do bathe their dogs and, and, and shampoo them on a, on a regular basis without kind of skin conditions? Yeah, so for a dog that doesn't have a skin condition, when they need it, and that's going to vary between dogs. So um, I have one of my Labradors loves to roll in anything that stinks. Um, and so that dog is bathed three or four times a week, primarily from the fact that we don't let her inside if she hasn't had a bath, um, because she's constantly covered in kangaroo or wombat boo. Um, and so that's very frequently, and she tolerates that. Um, my other Labrador doesn't do that. This is the one without skin disease. Um, and so um, he gets bathed once a month, because that's all he needs. Now, the dog that does have skin disease definitely benefits from regular bathing. And this is because, he, one, it helps to remove allergens, so pollens and dust and things like that that are accumulating on the coat. And secondly, this dog is also very prone to infection. So bathing once weekly with an antimicrobial shampoo helps to reduce that incidence of infection in this dog as well. So once weekly baths are very beneficial. Um, but it does vary between patients. And in my career, I've only seen very few dogs that get worse with bathing, but they're certainly out there. Okay. That's it. I'm thinking of my own dog. Thank God she hasn't discovered kangaroo and wombat poo yet. <laughs> Give her time. Her favorite was fox poo as a puppy. Oh, oh, oh no. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse. Um, we've covered a lot, Danny. Is there anything else that, that I haven't touched on that you'd like to cover off? Um, I don't think so. The only thing I would say to pet parents is skin disease can be super frustrating um, in the sense that it can sometimes take a little bit of time to get the recipe right on how to keep their pets comfortable. Um, but what I find with my clients is that over time, they almost become dermatologists um, in the sense that when they're updating me about their pets, they'll say, you know, Fluffy's had a little bit of a flare. He's four out of 10 itchy. This is what I've done to his medications. This is how I've modified his bathing frequency. Um, so I would say work with your veterinarian. Um, you will learn how to manage these things over time and these pets can have very very good outcomes oh that's good that's nice and positive <laughs> i like to hear that great <laughs> well thanks so much for for taking the time to join it's been hard to um to get the timings right but i'm really grateful that you've joined us so thank you thanks for having me
Well, that's all for this episode of the Pet Pod. My thanks again to Dr. Danielle Houlihan and all her expert advice. And don't forget to check out the show notes for links to those charts that we were talking about earlier in the episode. Don't forget that no one knows your pet like you do. So if you're ever worried or concerned about their health, please be sure to contact your own local veterinary practice. Thanks so much for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.